forgot to do this earlier because I lost my train of thought. So we're going to do it now. And very good. And get all that together. Follow along. We are in Daniel chapter 10. This is one of those very hard to understand uh, chapters. And uh, so we're going to take a little bit of time. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and read this. And it's a, a little long, but not too much. And uh, then we'll read parts of it uh, later on as we go through. But if you want to uh, turn to J Daniel uh, chapter 10 with me. Listen carefully. This is the word of God. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to, hid themselves, to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me, and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words." The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips, then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O oh my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O oh man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. 
Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today we have come to your word and we find a passage difficult to understand. Lord, once again, open our ears to truly hear. And we ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit, this word would be spiritual food and great encouragement to us, to enable us to stand firm in desperate days. Give us the grace and the strength to believe and reveal to us the lessons which this divine messenger brought to Daniel. Do this for each of us this morning in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Is there anything worse than arriving at a party wrongly dressed? It's worse if you're underdressed because you can't do anything about it. I don't know exactly how women handle it, but for a guy, if you're overdressed, that's easy. You can lose the tie or the jacket and dress down. But if everyone's in a suit and tie and you show up in jeans and a sweater, you're just stuck. And you have to make the best of it. And you can only smile when people smirk and look at you and say, guess you didn't get the memo. I remember once getting invited to a Christmas party when we lived in Alabama, and that very thing happened. I thought, Christmas party, no big deal. So I wore jeans and a bright red sweater. Everyone else, dark suits and tie. One word, awkward. I look like a bright light on a bare tree. I mean, people have nightmares about this stuff. Of course, when we turn up for some event wrongly dressed, it usually means that we didn't really understand what kind of function it was going to be. The event was different from our expectations. Now, was the problem with the event or was the problem with our expectations? Obviously, we had false expectations. Since this is, I think, and hope, and pray, a somewhat common experience, and it's not just me, um, I think there's a principle that we can learn about life here. Many Christians have a false expectation of life that results in being wrongly dressed. And I'm not talking about what people wear to church. I'm talking about what people wear to face life. Many of us go through life expecting it to be a picnic on a bright, sunny day. And then we discover it's actually cold and rainy, and nobody brought any food, and it becomes clear that something's gone very wrong. And truth be told, we're simply unprepared for things to go wrong. And when they do, we immediately start muttering about life being hard and unfair. You know what it's like. Kids get out of bed in a foul mood. No one can seem to find what they need for school. The dog gets sick on the carpet. And when you finally get out of the house, the car doesn't start. And right away, we start thinking, it's not fair. This shouldn't be happening to me. Life shouldn't be this hard. Where does that thought come from? Who says that life shouldn't be hard? I think that way way too often. 
And I think that way too often the problem is we have false expectations of what life should be like. Daniel 10 is written to help us understand that life is hard and to help us understand why life is hard. But it's also written to help us understand that we're not alone in any of the struggles of life. It's part of this larger concluding vision to the book of Daniel, which runs from the beginning of Daniel 10 to the end of the book. Daniel is informed here in this chapter that this vision concerns a great conflict. And we'll see that conflict in more detail in chapter 11. But chapter 10 is instrumental in preparing us to understand, to understand that conflict. In short, it's going to show us that the conflicts that we experience here on earth are the counterparts of a great spiritual conflict that's presently going on in the heavenly realms. So with that in mind, let's continue our study of the book of Daniel since we're not following this in chapter order, but chronologically, we've moved ahead to chapter 10. Over the last uh, several weeks, we looked at how Daniel survives all these years in a powerful, idolatrous culture. And this week, we really get into the theme of this series, A Broken World and a Sovereign God. So let's turn to... uh, Daniel 10 to the first three verses. And the first thing that we see here is that Daniel and all the Jews are facing a difficult time. They're facing a difficult time. It says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. Now, we know from previously that in the first year of Cyrus's reign, the first group of Jewish exiles had returned to Jerusalem in response to his decree. He issued a decree, if you remember, said those of you from Judah can go back and you are to rebuild a temple for your God. And so they went back there and they got started and they rebuilt the altar for the temple. But when they did that, they immediately ran into opposition from all their new neighbors. Remember, they'd been gone 70 years. And the land didn't just sit empty. Other people moved in while they were gone. So now they've come back and there's all these other people living around Jerusalem. And they've come back to Jerusalem and their goal is to rebuild the temple. And they start, and the first thing they do is rebuild the altar. And when all these new neighbors see them doing that, all sorts of great opposition comes up against them. We see that in the book of Ezra, particularly in chapter 3. Now remember, most of these folks who've gone back were born in exile. They have never lived in Jerusalem before. And on top of the difficulty of scratching out a basic living in their new home, this unexpected opposition has caused these returning exiles to stop working on the temple. So they've just stopped. And I'm sure that they probably thought they would get back to the work soon, but it turns into a hiatus that would last for more than 15 years until the time of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. 
So they stop working on the temple, and they just stop. Fifteen years, nothing happens. And so by now, we're a few years into this. They've built the altar, but they've stopped. It's now the third year of Cyrus, and it's a time of great discouragement for God's people, both in Judah and back in Babylon. The excitement that had surrounded the initial return has faded. The challenges of remaining faithful over the long haul when you're facing great opposition would have weighed heavily on all the Jews in general and on Daniel in particular. Now, there's probably many of us here this morning that can think back to an earlier time in our Christian life when following God seemed easier and it seemed more exciting. But now things have gotten harder. Or perhaps we're in a dry time spiritually. All of us are facing more challenges and difficulties. And the joy that we once experienced seems like a long time ago now. What word does God have for us that will help us to remain faithful over the long haul? Now Daniel's response to all of these events was to begin the year with an extended period of prayer and fasting. And the fact that it tells us his fast persisted through the first month would mean that according to the Jewish calendar, it continued through Passover. And it would serve as a sign of the seriousness of his commitment. It also served as a way for him to identify with the difficulties and hardships faced by those who had already returned to Jerusalem. And additionally, it's a cry to God for deliverance from persecution and imploring God to save his people once again. And Daniel's solidarity with his brothers and sisters in the Lord, even at a great distance, should serve as a challenge to us. The church around the world is one family made up of all God's children. And when one suffers, we should all sorrow, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. None of us can know what's going on everywhere, but each one of us can know what's going on somewhere. And we can play our part in supporting and encouraging those whom God has called to hard places. Now, quite frankly, it's easy to preach the gospel to you. I'm not particularly worried that one of you might be an undercover secret police, you know, waiting for the right moment to arrest me. I normally don't think about that. I've thought about it quite a bit this week, but uh, normally that doesn't come to mind. You're not secret police, are you, Suzanne? No. You've got to watch the quiet ones. So, you know. The, uh, okay, I'm going to be kind of watching over here <laughs> from now turn. The, uh, if she gets up to do anything, I'm counting on you, Anne-Marie, to, okay. The, uh, but no, I don't normally worry. You know, is there secret police that are coming here? Uh, I don't think about that because I live here. But there's preachers out there this morning who are worried about that very thing. Are undercover secret police going to show up in their church to arrest them? That's a very real thing. It may not be a real thing in Leesburg, Virginia, at least not yet. But it is in many, many countries in the world. And if Daniel 
can remember and pray for the Jews in Jerusalem facing opposition and persecution, then surely we can remember and pray for the believers in those parts of the world who suffer severely for following Christ. Hebrews 13 tells us, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. And we can certainly do what Daniel did, which is to fast from time to time. Now, I'm not talking about the normal fast from food, which would certainly be appropriate. But fasting from some of the luxuries that we view as a routine part of our lives and use the time instead to pray for those who are hurting, to pray for those who are battling health issues, to pray for those who are suffering persecution. Daniel didn't give up eating, but he gave up eating delicacies. He gave up drinking wine. He gave up anointing himself with oils and lotions. Now, normally, the season for fasting is Lent, which we're in the middle of right now. There's a movement, actually, in the American church to give up electronic things for Lent. Some people are giving up Facebook for Lent, and they've created a Facebook group about it. Honestly, I don't think that's working out too well for them. (laughs) Others are giving up their iPods and their Blackberries and their laptops, and even if they have to use that stuff at work, they're not using them at home. But a couple of caveats about giving things up for Lent or in, in any sort of fast. First, it can easily become a point of pride for us, which defeats the whole purpose. I'm giving up harder stuff than you are, you know. Um, and you have to be really careful that you're not taking pride in what it is that you're giving up. And also, if during this fast you actually forget to spend time with God in greater study and prayer, then it just becomes another exercise in self-discipline. But fasting from some of the routine luxuries, which are so readily available to us, And using the time to pray instead enables us in some small way to identify with those believers who have absolutely no prospect of ever experiencing the things that we take for granted. And it's good for us when we're tempted, you know, to grumble about how hard our life is, to remember that actually we have it incredibly easy compared to the majority of believers around the world. Fasting from stuff also helps us to understand that this world is not our home and we're just as much strangers and aliens here as Daniel was. And finally, we're reminded that we're engaged in a profound spiritual battle against powerful opposition. And that spiritual battle is really the focus of the rest of the chapter. And so we see that as Daniel's fast comes to an end, he has a vision of a heavenly being. A vision of a heavenly being, verses 4 through 6. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Who is this heavenly being? Apparently, there's three options. Many commentators 
compared this with the description of the glorified Christ in Revelation 1, which we read as part of our responsive reading this morning. But that's not why I picked that for the responsive reading. But so a lot of people think, you know, it sounds kind of similar. It must be a vision of Christ. But there's some problems with that view. Uh, first problem is that verse 11 says, this being was sent by someone else. And that's not usually what we read about Christ in his glorified state. And then secondly, it says this being was delayed by satanic forces and he needed help from the archangel Michael, which also seems to lead away from this being the pre-incarnate Christ. The second view says there's actually two beings in this chapter. The first being is divine, and then when you get down around verse 10, there's a different uh, being later in the chapter. But that seems to go against the plain reading of the chapter, which indicates just one heavenly being showing up. So who is it? There's actually several parallels here between this passage and the book of Ezekiel. In particular, the vision that Ezekiel has in Ezekiel chapter 1. It seems most logical that Ezekiel and Daniel are describing the same angelic figure. It could be Gabriel, who previously appeared to Daniel in a vision back in chapter 9, but he's not identified here. And ultimately, we just don't know for sure. But actually, I think that's a good thing, that we don't know for sure. Because when you're trying to figure out all the details of these visions, it tends to distract us from the main point of the chapter. And we learn all sorts of stuff about heavenly beings and nothing about what God's trying to teach us in this passage. And it might be safest to say uh, that here we have an angelic messenger who represents God to the prophet Daniel. And that's important because unlike Hollywood movies, Old Testament visions never appear simply to impress us with special effects. They seek to communicate through the vision some aspect of God's character or some aspect of God's sovereignty that will be important for the message that follows. There's always a message that follows the vision. And so it's almost always helpful to interpret visions as telling us something important about God. And I think that's the case here. And what's being communicated to Daniel and what's being communicated to us is a lesson about God's holiness and glory. Verses 7 through 9. Holiness and glory. I give you two blanks in the same line again. I'm just getting meaner as I get old. You know, one day it'll just be all blanks, <laughs> you know. But let's look at those verses, 7 through 9, a lesson about God's holiness and glory. You see first that Daniel's vision leaves him trembling and helpless, starting at verse 7. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. And then I heard the sound of his words. And as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. Now this is sort of an introduction to the vision. 
But it begins to teach us about God. We saw a description of the heavenly beings closed back in verse 5. And certainly God's holiness is symbolized in the linen clothing, just as the priest's garments when they were working in the tabernacle back in Exodus and Leviticus, those garments were to symbolize holiness. I think the same thing here. His garments and his appearance is to symbolize holiness. And the holiness of God means that God's not like us. It means he's different, separate. He's, the, the theologians say he is holy other. In addition to God's holiness, God's glory is very prominent in this vision. We see here that God's presence is overwhelming. Back in verse 6, tells us it pulsates with brightness. It reverberates with sound. So much so, it crushes Daniel to the ground in verse 9. It sends men in fleeing into hiding in verse 7. The prophet couldn't stand before such an awesome vision. This is a very different depiction of God from what we see in our culture around us today. We live in a culture that has placed itself on very friendly, very familiar terms with their God, small g. Sort of a mild-mannered deity who is far too mellow and nice to send anyone to hell. We've transformed God into a cosmic version of Mr. Rogers, you know, eager to welcome everyone to the neighborhood. And that God is too soft to judge anyone. It's clearly not the God uh, whose attributes that Daniel sees here reflected in this vision. This is the one true God whose holiness blazes with fire, whose glory is blinding, whose presence is scarcely bearable, even by those who, like Daniel, have devoted their lives to serving him. <coughs> you know, whenever I read or I hear someone talk about God like he's their best friend or their best buddy or they see him in the mornings walking around the neighborhood or something like that, I can only say, be very cautious because I don't see that in the scriptures. In the Bible, whenever we have a theophany, which means an appearance of God, the reaction of the people that God has appeared to is inevitably to go face down in the dirt, pleading for mercy, begging for their own lives. Why is that? Because God is so holy, and that holiness is so apparent, and we become immediately, immediately aware of our own overwhelming sinfulness. And we know that holiness and sinfulness don't coexist in the same place at the same time. And so the only words that can come out of our mouths are, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. However, the reality of God's blazing, glorious holiness is an important truth for us to remember in times of trial and persecution. Satan wants us to think that obedience to God's word doesn't matter very much that it doesn't make any difference whether we follow God or just assimilate into the culture around us. Quick side note on Satan. He either wants you to think that he's behind every bush, he's controlling everything you do, he's at fault for every sin you have, or that he doesn't exist and you can ignore him. 
It's usually one or the other. And if you buy into either of those, he wins. How many of you saw Nightline Thursday night? You probably don't stay up that late. Maybe you record it. They had a uh, face-off debate, does Satan exist? And on the Christian side, and you can go to ABC News, and they actually have the whole thing. They had an edited, smaller version of it uh, on, on TV that night. Does Satan exist? And on the he doesn't exist was, uh, and I'm not sure I can say his name right, uh, Deepak Chopra. It's a, sort of a new age guru kind of guy. And some bishop who got defrocked by his church because he decided that Satan isn't real and hell doesn't exist. On the other side was a woman who has a ministry to sex workers. That's what they're calling them now. And Mark Driscoll, the pastor of Mars Hill Church in Seattle. He's one of the great young preachers in our country today. And it was fascinating. I watched the shorter version last night. And Mark kept steering the conversation back to Jesus, saying, you really don't, you don't understand Satan if you don't understand Jesus. And if Jesus isn't real, then we really don't have to worry about that other guy. But it was fascinating to hear the sides argue and how every argument they threw forward, Mark Driscoll kept going back to Jesus. It was also good. They attacked the woman, and she was not a theologian. She has this ministry coming out of her former lifestyle, and they went after her at one point. And I was really encouraged to see Mark defend her. I was like, oh, there's a godly man, you know. And he defended her, not so much what she said, but basically, you're just not going to be attacking women up here on my stage because it was held at his church. And uh, so I thought that was good. Side note, Satan wants you to think he's responsible for every dumb thing you ever do, which is not true, or that he doesn't exist, don't worry about him, and forget about him. Because either way, he wins. Because we believe that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of God sufficient for faith and practice we believe that Satan is real. Just so you know. And Satan doesn't want you to pay a whole lot of attention to what you believe or what God's word says. He doesn't think, you know, want you to think it doesn't matter. It's not going to make any difference. Just do what everybody else does. Life is hard. Go with the flow. Take the easy path. Enjoy yourself a little bit. Why endure opposition and persecution for a nice guy version of God. However, if the God we serve is actually blazingly and gloriously holy, then obedience to his will isn't a minor issue. He's passionately committed to our holiness and to saving a people for himself, and he demands the same commitment from his church. And the inheritance that he offers his saints is an eternity experiencing the glory of his holiness. And a God like that is worth leaving the comforts of Babylon for to go and endure the challenge and the difficulty of rebuilding Jerusalem. A God like that is worth struggling through the hard times for. A God like that is worth giving up our own lives for if that's what it takes. 
After all, that's precisely what he was willing to do for us in the person of Christ on the cross in order to save us from our sins. God's purpose in revealing himself to Daniel in this vision was not to crush him, but to encourage him. God wants us to see our own weakness before him so that we won't trust in ourselves, but we'll look to him for strength. This vision, which we will see in chapter 11 next Sunday, is one that's intended to encourage Daniel in response to his mourning and fasting over the situation in Jerusalem. However, in the middle of this vision, between the encouragement of the heavenly being and the revealing of the vision itself, we have this strange story that's sort of a quick peek behind the curtain to see what's really going on in the spiritual realm. And what's revealed is the message that Daniel receives is a message delayed. A message delayed. Now, I'm not going to read this whole section because we're going to come back to uh, parts of these verses. But one of the things we see here is this strange character who delays them called the prince of the Persian kingdom. And it's some sort of angelic figure who's associated with the Persian empire and who resists God's purposes. And therefore he is evil and he is an agent of Satan. And Satan's hostility against God's people is sometimes manifested in and through the rulers and powers of the present age. And the church's present experiences are the earthly working out of a parallel conflict in heaven. Let me say that again. It's important. The church's present experiences are the earthly working out of a parallel conflict in heaven. And apparently this prince of the Persian kingdom is a powerful adversary, powerful enough to delay God's messenger for three weeks, which is also the length of time that Daniel was fasting and praying. Yet in the end, all he could do was delay God's messenger. The text tells us the archangel Michael came to his side. Michael, whose Hebrew name means who is like God. Is only mentioned four times in the Bible. Here in Daniel 10, again in Daniel 12, and then not again until Jude uh, verse 9 and in Revelation 12. Only four times. And when the archangel Michael came to help him, the angel who spoke to Daniel was able to complete his journey and bring this message of encouragement to Daniel. Ultimately, Satan's most strenuous activity cannot stop God's purposes and cannot harm his people. Indeed, God's word says in Isaiah 55, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is powerful in and of itself, and it accomplishes God's purposes. And the power and the magnitude of the spiritual forces ranging against God's people are sobering. And the angel's words give us a whole new perspective on the difficulties facing God's people who are trying to rebuild Jerusalem. They're facing not only human opposition, but spiritual opposition in the heavenly realms. 
And what's more, the spiritual struggle isn't going to be over anytime soon. The angel tells Daniel that after delivering his message, he's headed right back into the battle. Verse 20, but now I return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. So not only will he fight against the prince of Persia, but then soon he will contend with the prince of Greece, the next great world power. But don't think that because those empires are now ancient history that the angels are kind of sitting back resting on their laurels. The satanic forces opposing the church will continue to use the powers and the institutions of the world in their struggle against the people of God. I wouldn't be surprised if today there are angelic beings doing spiritual battle with the Prince of America. Because certainly there's plenty of bad stuff and more sin than we can count in our country. However, time and time again, the church has been beaten down, but it is not and it will not ever be destroyed because God sustains it through the strengthening ministry of his own angels. And we need to see that the root cause of our difficulties is not the husband or wife that's being so unreasonable or the work situation that seems impossible or the rebellious child that's making life miserable. The root cause isn't even our own bad habits and our own sins that frustrate us so much. It's an underlying spiritual battle in which we're engaged against powerful forces in the heavenly realms. As the Apostle Paul put it in Ephesians 6, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, does that supernatural struggle sound a little frightening and intimidating? It's supposed to. God wants us to clearly see that life isn't a picnic. It's a battle. And the devil is a powerful opponent, far too powerful for us to take on in our own strength. We need to patiently endure while we wait for God's promises to be fulfilled. However, arrayed on our side is God's strength the might and the power of a blazingly glorious God who created heaven and earth out of nothing. And we need to see the reality of what Daniel saw here in chapter 10. We need to be convinced of the reality of the devil and his power. We need to be aware of the heavenly dimensions of this struggle. But we also need to remember that we're not in this struggle alone. And therefore, we need to remember that we have a great need, a great need. So is this simply a heavenly battle in which we're helpless bystanders? It may look like that at first. After all, the heavenly contenders on both sides are far more powerful than we are. What role could we possibly play in all of this? The answer lies in Daniel's revolutionary act that triggered the vision in the first place, Daniel prayed. When we pray, we weak, trembling human beings become engaged in cosmic conflict in a way that has vast, though unseen to us, it has vast repercussions. And that's why when Paul urged the Ephesians to put on the whole armor of God in Ephesians 6, he ended by urging them to pray. 
Ephesians 6, verses 18 and 19. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. In the face of overwhelming situations, unbearable trials, frustrating difficulties, what can we do? We can pray. In contrast to Paul's urging to pray always with all kinds of prayers and requests, instead we tend to pray rarely with small kinds of requests. And our prayers are limited by a small imagination and by little faith. And we don't pray for big things because we don't really believe in our heart of hearts that God can do them. And that's especially true during those discouraging times when life is hard and spiritual progress seems slow. And we pray for small sinners to come to Christ, but not for the big sinners. We pray for victory over small sins, but we ignore the big ones that seem too hard. We pray for change in our own lives, but not always for change in the lives of those around us. Why not? Don't we serve a great and mighty God? Isn't he the one who causes kingdoms to rise and fall? Isn't he the one who controls the detailed events of world history as we're going to see in chapter 11 next week? While it's undoubtedly true that Satan and his minions are behind much of the evil in this world, we should certainly pray for God to frustrate their efforts. We don't want to give Satan too much credit. And notice here, the angel never tells Daniel to pray against the prince of Persia. But rather, he wants Daniel to recognize and remember the awesome power of God. And that's because the sovereign power of God guarantees a decisive victory. It guarantees a decisive victory. Ultimately, our victory doesn't rest on our faithfulness to pray. And it doesn't even rest on the power of the angels who fight for us. Jesus Christ is the one who won the victory for us. He took his stand all alone in the battle for our souls. At the cross, Satan did his worst and was still defeated. And since Jesus won that victory on the cross, no one and nothing can stand against him. And now Jesus is exalted to the right hand of the Father. And the scriptures tell us that in him, we are greatly loved and precious in his sight and assured of ultimate victory. Jesus has won the great conflict about which we read in the Old Testament. The battle begun in Genesis 3.15 and described here in Daniel 10. The victory is an already not yet event. That is, the victory has been secured on the cross, but it still awaits its final outcome. Some scholars have likened it to the defeat of Germany at the Battle of Normandy on D-Day. Have you ever seen Saving Private Ryan? That's what it's about, D-Day. And at D-Day, the power of Germany was broken, and there was no doubt as to the conclusion of the war. Nonetheless, battles still had to be fought and lives lost before the war would end. And spiritually, we live between D-Day and V-Day, the day of victory. The victory has been won, but the fight is still real. And this fight continues on three fronts. We face the enemy in the world, 
and sinful use of powers and institutions and the persecution of the saints. We face the devil himself in the ongoing battle for souls. Do you ever think about it? Sharing the gospel with another person is the spiritual equivalent of hand-to-hand combat. And finally, we face the enemy in our flesh. For most of us, I think this front is the hardest. Because deep down, we kind of enjoy our sin. And we try to find any way we can in which to justify it. I mean, if we get down emotionally, we look for scapegoats. God's given me too much to do, both at work and at home. My wife ignores me. My children are brats. My little league team stinks. But truth be told, I'd rather be depressed than to think that I've overcommitted myself or that I've been cold to my wife or I haven't disciplined or loved my kids enough or I haven't taught my little leaguers how to hit or catch. And it's important to think about this. And I'll tell you why I think it's important. Now, this piece, this next piece is just from me. I'm going to separate it out. I'm not getting this out of the Bible. You're getting my opinion here. I believe that God is raising up a new generation of warriors. In the church today, there is an increasing number of sons being born. In our church alone, two-thirds of our children are boys. And every pastor I talk to is noticing the same thing. There seems to be an unusually large percentage of boys being born into the church And I'm not totally sure of the significance of that, but I do know that spiritual warfare will increase in our lifetime and the next generation will be called upon to stand firm in the faith. So don't take teaching them this faith lightly, both boys and girls, for there are significant roles for each of them in the coming days. And hopefully you know by now that we don't take teaching our children Lightly. That is one of the most important things we do in the church. But as we engage in battle on this final front, we have to remember this battle is being waged between God and Satan in our own hearts. And the message of the Bible is absolutely clear. Nothing can stand defiant before God and survive. And God will win that battle, and thus God guarantees our salvation. And to know that such a great salvation is coming, in spite of the present circumstances, cannot help but to encourage the godly. The angel came to encourage Daniel with his words and strengthen him with his touch. Three times, and I think this is the most important thing that we're getting out of Daniel 10. Three times the angel touched Daniel. The first in verse 10 is the touch of a hand which gives Daniel strength to get up. And then he brings words of encouragement. Verse 11, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And as he continues to speak with Daniel, he begins with a straightforward command. Verse 12, then he said to me, fear not, Daniel. That's a command. Fear not. For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, 
Your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The awe-inspiring messenger encouraged Daniel by telling him that he was greatly loved by God. And he had been sent to Daniel in answer to his prayers to give him insight and understanding and encouragement in response to his mourning and praying and fasting over the situation in Jerusalem. The second touch comes in verse 16. Verse 16, And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. Three times Daniel says, I have no strength. I retain no strength. No strength remains in me. You remember this? I think Rich has taught this. When you see things repeated in the Bible, a bell should go off. That's important. And he says, verse 17, how can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now, no strength remains in me. No breath is left in me. Daniel is too scared to speak. And so here, the angel touches Daniel's lips so that he can speak. And he tells the angel, no strength remains in me. Which causes the angel to touch Daniel again. In verse 18, again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O oh man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And again, Daniel is strengthened by this touch and encouraged by these words. And again, he is told he is greatly loved, that he is not to live in fear, that he will be given peace, and therefore he needs to be strong and of good courage. What a message for us today. I mean, if you get nothing else out of Daniel 10, get this. In God's eyes, you are greatly loved. He doesn't want you to live in fear, but to live despite your circumstances, whatever they are, to live in that peace that passes all understanding. And if we set our hearts to understand God as he's revealed himself in his word, and if we humble ourselves before God, our words our prayers will be heard. And he will give us the strength to stand firm. Brings new meaning to the words of that old hymn. I love this hymn. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Fear not, I am with you. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am your God and will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand. Could have come right out of Daniel 10. Upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. That hymn concludes, The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes, that so, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Think about those words. You need to pray. Take a moment.